Hello and welcome to this first Sunday in Advent. We're going to get things started here today. It is College Student Sunday, and we do have our very own college student in the praise band. Jaden Gray is a senior graphic design major, so I get the pleasure of seeing him. Yeah. <laughs> I get the pleasure of seeing him when he's on campus because I work in the, the building that he takes most of his classes in. Anyway, so I digress. Please stand for Hosanna. Strength to face the day. 
Welcome and happy Advent. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, the first Sunday of the new uh, liturgical calendar in which we celebrate the hope of the world, which is Jesus Christ. It's also uh, United Methodist Student Day. We've got some students that are a part of the service, uh, each uh, of our services, and so we celebrate that so we're glad that you're here. And um, there's some devotional booklets that uh, we invite you to take. They're free. They're on the Welcome Center from Generation to Generation, an Advent devotional. They're free for you to take and use with your families. Also, the Upper Room booklet, if you would like to do that. And thank you to all of those who uh, helped uh, provide gifts. The tree is overflowing with gifts for Ember Hope Youthville children. And then don't forget, this coming Saturday is the pageant that the children are preparing at 6.30. It'll also be Sunday morning at 11. We're glad that you're here. If you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. May you have a heartwarming experience with our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, now... We're used to making noise, so let's do that. Let's turn and greet one another in Christian love. If you don't know someone, tell them your name and say, Happy Advent. Today we begin our celebration of Advent. On these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we will rejoice in hope, peace, joy, and love of God as we anticipate and await Christ's arrival into our world. To help us celebrate, we will be lighting the candles of the Advent wreath. The candles signify that Jesus is the light of the world. Blue suggests hope, expectations, and confidence. The rose candle stands for joy and is lit on the third Sunday of Advent. The white candle in the center is the Christ candle and is lit on Christmas Eve. The evergreens remind us that God is life and brings life to us. 
These are arranged in a circle because life in Christ has no end. Today we light one bright candle for hope. God of eternal hope, may the light of your face shine upon us, that our hope would be restored. As we light this candle, fill us with hope that you can meet us even in chaotic and uncertain times. Hope that you will still see us and know us, even when we feel lost in the rubble. Let this light be a guide that brings us to Christ once more. Amen. Each week we will sing a verse and refrain of number 2090 called the Advent Song in the Faith We Sing. If you would like to pull that up and sing along, please do so. This is 2090 Advent Song, verse 1. For our stewardship moment today, uh, in honor of United Methodist Student Day, uh, we're going to hear about one of the really cool things uh, that one of our college students is doing. Uh, I'm very pleased to invite Jennifer Saylor, who is here today, uh, to share a special invitation uh, with us all. Uh, Jennifer is a senior nursing student at Emporia State, and uh, we're very glad to have her here. So Jennifer, thank you for uh, sharing with us today. Good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Jennifer Saylor, and I am currently finishing my final semester as a nursing student at Emporia State. And during this last semester of nursing school, each nursing class picks a community project and um, executes that project. So my class has picked to do a DKMS drive to get people signed up to be on the bone marrow registry. So this registry serves people who need a bone marrow transplant but do not have a friend or a family member that can directly donate to them. Um, in fact, only about 30% of people who need a transplant actually have a family or family member or friend that can donate to them. The other 70% of people have to turn to this drive to find their, or turn to this registry to find their match. Um, so, for example, a member of our church, as you guys may know, Aaron McMillan, is getting ready to receive his bone marrow transplant, and his donor actually comes from this registry. So, um, without this registry, a large number of people would not be able to receive the bone marrow transplant that they need. So, this is why my class has decided to pick this project and why we are passionate about it. Um, DKMS is an international registry that people from all over the world sign up to be on. And to sign up to be on it, all you have to do is fill out a short form and then uh, swab your cheek cells. And those cheek cells get sent off to a lab and they enter your information into the registry. And then when somebody needs a transplant, they can look at this registry and see if they have a match. Um, and if you are a match for this person, DKMS will give you a call 
And then if you have to travel to donate, they will pay for all of your travel expenses along with a support person's travel expenses to um, go wherever to donate to somebody. Um, and then when you get there, you will um, donate your bone marrow. So in 90% of donations, your stem cells are actually collected, which is very similar just to a blood donation. And then in 10% of donations, it's actual bone marrow where you would be put under anesthesia and they would collect the bone marrow from your hip. So the only requirements to sign up is to be within the age ranges of 18 and 55, to be in general good health, and then be willing to donate if you are called. So if you would like to sign up or you have any questions about the registry, I will be in the Northex Between Services and I would love to chat with you about it. Thank you. Jennifer, what a wonderful way to maybe save a life and show solidarity with Aaron McMillan and his family. I'll be signing up today, and I hope you will too if you can. Now, before the uh, ushers come and receive the offering, I want to just share one more thing uh, today. As you can tell, uh, Christmas has come early to Aldersgate. There are 56 boxes there, uh, boxes under the tree. And these are our uh, college care blessing boxes that we do uh, each uh, semester, and we send them out to our college folks uh, near the end of the semester with uh, treats and goodies and a special blessing from their church. Uh, we've been doing this for 25 years. The Growth Through Christ class has been uh, leading that, uh, and this year we decided to expand it to all the adult uh, Sunday school classes. The youth group packed the boxes last week, uh, and today we're going to pray for the boxes as they are sent out uh, all over Kansas and beyond uh, to college students who are connected to Aldersgate. Uh, but before we pray, one of the things that I like to do is uh, pretend that I'm Santa Claus. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come over here because I think there's somebody here, and I think I know where their box is. There's a lot here. Nicole Saylor, is she here? She's down with the kids. That makes sense. Ah, this is what I'm looking for. Jaden. Jaden Gray. I always give it to you, man, because I know you're here at the 930. Uh, Jaden is a senior at WSU uh, in the graphic design program, right? Uh, so you'll be uh, finishing up in May is, is the hope. So because you're here, we'll save on the shipping and give it to you. <coughs> Jaden's here each and every week. We are so grateful for him. Uh, so friends, as uh, we prepare to send these boxes out, what I would encourage you to do is to extend an arm of uh, blessing towards the boxes, and we'll say a prayer uh, for them together. Gracious and almighty God, we give you thanks for all of the college students that are a part of this community of faith, and we pray for them as they come to the end of yet another semester. Would you alleviate any stress, and would you alleviate any anxiety that is on their hearts these days as they, as they approach finals week? Bless these boxes as they are sent from this place to, to wherever they are going. May they be a symbol not only of your love, but of our love for them. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I would invite the ushers to come forward. Please sing, Come Lord Jesus, Even So Come.
Now we welcome the uh, family of August James Pearl, who is gathered here for Christian baptism. Brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of baptism, we're initiated into Christ's holy church. We're incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation and given new birth through water and the Spirit. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. And today we present August James Pearl, the son of Joe Pearl and Bailey Fruworth, 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 for holy baptism. And I ask you these questions on his behalf. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
put your whole trust in His grace and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. All right. And then I ask all of you, will you nurture August James Pearl in Christ's holy church that by your teaching and example, he may be guided to accept God's grace for himself, to profess his faith openly and lead a Christian life? If so, will you say, we will? All right. And there is a congregational response. Uh, the, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit to bless this gift of water. And August, who is to receive it, to wash away his sin and clothe him in righteousness throughout his life, that dying and being raised with Christ, he may share in his final victory. All praise to you, eternal God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever. Ever. Amen. All right. And Dad's going to hold little August, and August is three years old. Yes. August, James, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's come place our hands on August. The Holy Spirit work within you that having been born of water and the Spirit, you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's our joy to welcome uh, this uh, little one in our church, and I invite you to join together. Through baptism, you are incorporated by the Holy Spirit into God's new creation and made to share in Christ's royal priesthood. We are all one in Christ Jesus. With joy and thanksgiving, we welcome you as a member of the family of Christ. And we also, uh, at this time, want to welcome uh, the family. Uh, they've been a part of our church, and so formally, uh, mom and dad uh, are becoming uh, partners in ministry as members of the church, and we'll transfer in uh, little Edison's baptism, and so he will be a baptized member here at the church. Joe is joining by confession of faith. He works at Cargill as a technical service advisor, and he enjoys eating. Did I get that right? <laughs> Man, that was great for Thanksgiving. Swimming, racquetball, and family. Bailey is transferring from the Roman Catholic Church. She's a homemaker for their two children, Edison, who's five, and August, who's three. She enjoys arts, crafts, reading, and her family. And, you know, the baptismal service is really sneaky because the vows for the baptism service are also the vows for the church. How good is that? So you've already taken them. We add one, and that is, will you be loyal to the United Methodist Church and uphold it by your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? All right. We extend to you the right hand of welcome and fellowship. We're so glad that you're part of our church and congratulations little August <laughs> let's give him an alders gate and welcome
Our Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Please listen with me for the word of God. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. I drew the short straw on the gospel lesson today of the pastor's it involves the genealogy uh, that Matthew includes in uh, his first chapter. Now, this isn't the longest genealogy in the Bible. If you want to read the longest one, you can read in First Chronicles chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and much of chapter 5. So you can rejoice that this one isn't that long. I invite you to stand as we read the gospel at the very beginning of Matthew. Matthew records the genealogy because it is vitally important to the story of the unfolding gospel. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I like to memorize scripture, but I didn't memorize this one. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Gary, for reading that. Um, I'll admit, uh, I actually asked him to do that because I didn't want to. So. <laughs> and, you know, if you ever wonder how us pastors know how to say all those confusing names, I'd just like to tell you a little uh, trade secret. We don't know how to pronounce those. We just know that if we say it with confidence, nobody will know the difference. So <laughs> that's my little tip for you for the day. Friends, would you join me in an attitude of prayer? Gracious and almighty God, may these words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O God, are our hope, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So when I first saw that the prescribed text for the sermon today was going to be the genealogy of Jesus, I'll, I'll admit to you, I sighed a very deep sigh, <laughs> and I really wanted to change the text, because <laughs> as I was going through the 17 verses in Matthew chapter 1, I thought, oh my goodness, this is so dry, this is confusing, this is messy, and I really wanted to change. But then I thought to myself, this is Thanksgiving week. And I realized that this text is actually perfect for today because holidays like Thanksgiving are those times where we gather with our families and remember that they too can be dry and confusing and messy sometimes. Now, in all seriousness, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, ate lots of wonderful food. I hope it was filled with love and gratitude. It is a wonderful time of the year, and I love that today is the first Sunday of Advent. Christmas is coming. It is four weeks away. But perhaps you also noticed uh, as part of your Thanksgiving festivities that, that the holidays and Thanksgiving have a way sometimes of bringing to the surface the messiness of our families. It has a way of bringing to the surface some of that family trauma that we would rather shove in the drawer and not talk about. But when we gather together, we remember that it's there. Now, I know that that word trauma is a big one, and it's one that we don't often like to associate with. But, but I want to encourage you, don't tune out just yet. Because I think today is a good day to talk a little bit about the reality of our family trauma and the trauma that is part of all of our story. And I think it is good for us to do this because being honest about the messiness of our own stories helps us to hear the good news as actually good news. Now, I was at my mom and dad's house on Thursday night. We had our big family meal on Friday, but I was over there on Thursday, and I, I ended up having a wonderful conversation with my mom about her adoption that reminded me that, that things that happen in generations past continue to reverberate and shape the way that we understand our family's stories even today. Now, some of you know that my mom was adopted. She was born in Frankfurt, Germany, and just a few months ago, her and I got to go back 
and uh, we explored her hometown for the first time. She was adopted when she was 18 months old and had never been back. And while we were there, we met with a social worker who, who uh, walked us through her file, and we got to see these handwritten notes that my grandparents, her adopted parents, had um, corresponded with the adoption agency with. Uh, these letters that told them how much they wanted a baby girl, and even when there were none available, they kept saying, we want a baby girl, we want a baby girl. Well, when we got home, uh, the social worker said that I'm going to send these handwritten notes to you because these belong with you more than they do with us. And so when I was at my mom and dad's house on Thursday night, I was sitting with my mom and we were thumbing through these letters. And I was able to see the handwriting of my grandma and my grandpa as they were describing the decisions that they were making to adopt my mom and her brother. Now, this was powerful for me because both of my grandparents and my uncle have since passed away. But as I was thumbing through those notes, I was reminded how the actions that happened decades ago still reverberate in the present. And it was so cool because on Thursday night, there was some extended family, new family that we had found since my mom had discovered about her adoption. She's learned that she has a, a half brother in Massachusetts, and some of his family was with us there that night. The actions of the past impact our present. The story of our family history impacts our story. And it's good for us to be honest about that. It's good for us to be aware about this. In his book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith, who is a professor at Friends University here in town, describes really well, really powerfully, how our family histories affects the way that we see ourselves. He writes, I not only have my father's eyes, but I carry in myself how he looked at me with those eyes. And both of those are equally determinative of how I see myself. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that is powerful and that is true. Now, I don't know if I have my father's eyes or my mother's eyes, but of course we know we carry the DNA, the genes passed down to us from our mothers and our fathers. And because of this, my eyes resemble my parents' eyes. But just as important as those genetics, as that DNA is the eyes with which our parents looked at us. Were they eyes of judgment? Or were they eyes of love? Now, in my case, I have wonderful parents who have always looked at me with the eyes of love. And I know they're watching right now because they've told me they were, so I just want to say that. But that's not everyone's story. That's not everyone's experience. And of course, if we look back beyond just our mothers and our fathers, if we look back generations into our family history, we might realize that the patterns of our family story, yeah, these impact us too. If I were to do a family history and mark the social and relational patterns of my extended family, I would quickly see 
patterns of divorce, addiction, and depression. Maybe some of these patterns exist in your family's stories as well. Now, I'm not defined by these things, but they're part of my story. And if I'm honest, they're part of how I understand myself and my own story. Now, why this matters, I think, and why we're talking about this is because as human beings, we are constantly writing and rewriting the story of our lives. We're constantly taking in uh, information and experiences and doing the hard and difficult work of integrating that into the story that we tell ourselves and tell others about ourselves. And this is difficult sometimes because I think all of our stories involve at some level trauma. This week I was listening to a podcast also by James Brian Smith, and he made a really helpful distinction between big T trauma and little t trauma. And I think this is helpful for us because sometimes we're hesitant to use that word. It's a big word. And especially when we're thinking about applying it to our own stories, this can be a little intimidating. Because often when we think about trauma, we think about what James would call capital T trauma. Things like assault, divorce, sexual violence, infertility, death, chronic illness. These are hard things. They're things that come into our stories and they knock us off of our feet they impact us in dramatic ways, and they change the way that we see ourselves and engage with the world. But James says that there are also small t traumas, traumas with a lowercase t, and these things might not be as, as big or traumatizing as those big t traumas, but they are still important because they shape our stories and how we understand ourselves. Now, these can be things like maybe consistently being picked last in school. Or maybe you were bullied as a kid. Maybe your family moved a lot and it was hard for you to make friends. Maybe you always felt like the less preferred child. These things might not rise to the level of those big T traumas, but they do shape the way that we view ourselves. And James says something that I think is very true and good for us to remember that small T traumas can have big T trauma impacts on us. Small T traumas can have big T trauma impacts on us. Now, not all of us have big T trauma as part of our stories, but there is a good chance that there is at least some small T trauma lying somewhere in your story. And one of the things we do as humans is we do the hard work of integrating those experiences into how we see ourselves. And the question that we should ask ourselves, at least every now and again, is, is the story that we're telling about ourselves true? Is it true? Because so often we tend to do one of two things. We either maximize our trauma or we minimize it. 
Now on the one extreme, we might maximize it and say that the things that happen to me are the things that define me. We are nothing more than the traumatic events or the things that happen to us. And, and we might associate with it so closely that our stories become nothing more than those things that happen. And this might not be a true representation of your story, but it happens. But on the other side, of course, we can go the opposite direction and we can minimize the things that happen to us. Yeah, my parents got a divorce when I was a kid, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, I was bullied as a kid all through school, but that doesn't matter. Those aren't my experiences, but we do this sometimes. We minimize the things that happen to us and we act as if they don't shape the way we think about ourselves. And this also might not be true. So James says what we need to do is we need to neither maximize nor minimize, but we need to be honest about the way that the things that happen to us impact us and shape our stories. We need to be honest about the family dynamics that we come from because this is part of our story too. But we neither maximize nor minimize, but we're honest about it. This is what I think Jesus invites us to do as well. Because Jesus says, the big T and the small T traumas are not the things that ultimately define us. Because our stories are culminated in the love of Christ born into the world. Now, I haven't experienced a lot of big T trauma in my life so far, but many of you know that I stuttered as a kid. And, and, and I talk about this from time to time, and, and, and sometimes people ask me, you know, why, why do you talk about this? Why, why is this a big deal? We, we don't even really notice that you're disfluent. And the reason I talk about it is because it was a small T trauma in my life that at times had a big T trauma impact because I was teased, I was picked on, I was laughed at by people that I thought were my friends and I thought I could trust. That's a hard thing for a middle school boy to experience. Now I've healed from that trauma so I can talk about it now. But the reason that I talk about it is because that healed trauma is such a critical part of my story. It is such a critical part of how I understand not only myself and my way in the world, but how I understand God's redeeming and transforming love coming into my story to be part of that healing, to be part of that transformation. Now, I still stutter from time to time. We all do. But God has worked in and through that experience so that that can become a healing part of my story. It doesn't do away with the pain of the past, but it transforms it and it redeems it. This is what God does with our small T and our large T trauma. God is born right into the middle of it and redeems it, weaves it into a tapestry, into a story of redemption that has been existing for generations and generations. This is why the genealogy of Matthew is so important. It's not because it's a list of fancy names that lists the ancestors of Jesus. It's because it shows the way that God has been working 
through the trauma of history to weave a tapestry of redemption and grace to tell a story of God's redeeming love that culminates in the birth of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, if you look closely at the different uh, persons listed in the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see that it is a list filled with small t and big t trauma. The story of the Old Testament is wild, you guys, and I mean, and this genealogy is no exception. Take, for example, Tamar, one of the five women mentioned in the list. Her husband died, which left her unprotected in that patriarchal society, but none of her extended family wanted to take her in and protect her. So she had to dress as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law to sleeping with her so that she could have protection. Oh, friends, that is a messy story. And there's probably some big T and small T trauma wrapped up in that. And let's not forget Bathsheba, another one of the notable women listed in the list. Now, her name actually isn't in there, but her unfortunate husband, Uriah, is. Let's not forget King David, the man after God's own heart. When he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, he said, Ah, I want her for myself. But too bad she's married. No problem. I'll send her husband, Uriah, to the front lines of the war because I know he's going to get killed so that I can take her as my own and cover up my adultery. Mm. That's messy. There's some big T and some small T trauma wrapped up in that. We could do a whole sermon series about the big T and small T trauma wrapped up in the story of Jesus's family history, but suffice it to say, God is no stranger to trauma. God is not intimidated by the trauma or the messiness or the chaos of our stories, both our family stories and our own. And this is the good news of Christmas. This is why Christmas is so good. It's not because we love the songs, although we do, but it's because it's the day where we remember that when we might be tempted to run away from our trauma, to hide the messiness of our lives, God's definitive decision is to be born right into the midst of it. Right into the midst of this messy human story that spans back at least 42 generations, as Matthew says. To be born right into the midst of your human story. Into the midst of the big T and the small T traumas that shape and affect the way you see your story. See, the whole story of the Bible culminates in this one man, Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And what Matthew is trying to do by adding that title, the Messiah, is he's saying this isn't just another man in the line of David and Abraham. This is someone special. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that we've been expecting. The actual Greek word that he uses is Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. This man born of Mary is the Christ, God, the full incarnation and manifestation of the love of God that has been working throughout this whole messy human story 
God's been at work throughout it all. And finally, in this person, Jesus, the Christ, God's love, fully dwells, is fully present with, is fully in the midst of the messiness of our stories so that we would know that our messiness does not define us. But God's love made manifest in Christ, this is what defines us. Because Christ is always at work to redeem and to transform the messiness of our stories, the big T and the small T traumas. God might not get rid of the pain, but God will transform it. And so in Advent, what we do is we spend four wonderful weeks anticipating, waiting with expectant hope, peace, and joy for the love of God to be born once again into our world and into the middle of our stories to begin that beautiful work of weaving our lives into that tapestry of God's grace that has been telling the story of love for generations and generations. So I hope what you hear today is an invitation to be honest with yourself about the messiness of your own story, maybe acknowledge a little bit of small t trauma, for some of us, big T trauma, and then to wait with an expectant hope for Christmas to come, for Christ to come into your story and begin weaving a beautiful tapestry of grace. Thanks be to God. Amen. to a time in which we recognize God coming into the midst of our story. As we pray together, may your story come to mind and how our Lord provides redemption and grace through your story. And remind us this Advent season how God busts into this world in the midst and gives us hope. Let's pray together and I'll walk the aisles and if you have names uh, and concerns or joys that you would like to share, I invite you to do so. Let us pray. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. For at the right time, you came. At the right time. Is there a right time? You came. Visit us again this Advent season. By the power of your Spirit, embrace us with a hope that in the midst of the big T and the small T's of our lives, we can experience your grace and your strength. Hear now the prayers of your people as we lift them up. Lord, I pray that you'd be with Lisa Glover. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Cody Schmidt, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. For Matthew Marin, who they found another spot on his liver, Lord, in your mercy, Snively, welcome back. You've had a long road. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For Vicki and Ralph, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Okay, for the trauma, the big T and the small T and and Doug Sheridan's family. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, I ask for prayers for Judy Lukert, who continues in the hospital. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Always glad that you write these out. Allison, Annie, Lori, Todd, Emus. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Ken Schnur, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Jennifer Diebler, whose mother continues on hospice and uh, is nearing the end of her life. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Peggy Grace, who lost her son, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. You understand what that's like, don't you? Yes. Jennifer, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Continue to pray for Aaron McMillan, who is in Minneapolis, preparing for a bone marrow transplant. He's our, one of our 11-year-old fifth graders in our church. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, come to us again. God with us. By the power and the presence of your Spirit, 
we walk together into a holy advent. Prepare us anew, forgiving us of our sins and freeing us for joyful service. May the Christ visit us again. In the name of and for the sake of all that is good and right in our world, It is in the name of Jesus that we pray the prayer that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would please stand for our last song today, uh, Light of the World.
As we leave today, I want to remind you, uh, uh, fellowship time, as always, we have that today, so I invite you to linger a little longer, head down to the fellowship hall for some coffee and cakes and other goodies. Uh, it is good to spend time together. But as we are sent from this place, may we go as people with expectant hope on our lips, for Christ is coming. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>